Word of God from Romans chapter 6, verse 5. As you're leaving today, you may want to take with you one of the missionary letters, which are produced carefully by our staff for your information about our workers overseas and in America. Please make use of this help. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed, and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are faced this morning with one of the most important paragraphs in all of the New Testament. Certainly not the simplest, but perhaps one of the most crucial. And so we're going to need to work hard together to grasp its meaning and apply it to our lives. Whoever does work diligently at grasping this paragraph will be well repaid in joy and optimism and peace in Christian living. The dividends are high. Last week we saw in the first paragraph of chapter 6 that Paul was answering the supposed objection that free justification by faith alone would lead to increased sinning. Oh, he said it cannot be because of our position. We're not in Adam, we're in Christ. We're not under the reign of sin, but under grace. We're not in the old life, but in the new. Our position militates against the continuing, persevering, abiding in human sin. Now he takes the argument farther to say, not only does our position militate against continuing in sin, but God's purpose for us is entirely opposite to that. The object of God's salvation is our holiness. How then could we fulfill that object in sinning? And it is a certain purpose when it says in verse 5, if we have been united with him, it doesn't mean conditional, but it means since we have been united with him. Every believer, if you have confessed Christ after embracing him in your heart, and you love him as your Savior, you are united with Christ. That's your position in him. And therefore, God's purpose for you is holiness. And it's a certain purpose. The death with him is always followed by 
the resurrection with him. There's the follow-through of God's purpose. Now that purpose is beautifully written in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. You has he chosen in him before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and without blame before him in love. This is God's purpose. He looked upon you before you were ever conceived and before the foundation of the world and setting his love upon you, he determined that you would be holy before him in love. That's his purpose. Then he actually implements a plan to bring that about. Not simply an idle purpose, but an actual plan to make it happen. And so if we could summarize this paragraph, 5 through 11, we would say that God's purpose for his people is holiness. And his plan for them is to unite them to Christ. This is how God accomplishes his purpose. By uniting them to his son. You and I never would have thought of that way of accomplishing this plan. We might have just stood over the person and scolded and scolded until finally somehow we broke their spirit and made them obey us. But that isn't how God achieves holiness. He does it by, here the word is planting in verse 5. If we have been united with him, that is to coalesce with him. We have so intimately been related to him that we become one. An essential unity is formed between the believer and Christ. That's God's way of imparting holiness to his own. Now what does that accomplish? How does being united to Christ actually make a person holy? It comes about as we grasp that what Christ did, we did. That is, by virtue of being united to him, his literal actions become our spiritual actions. That is, it is in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his resurrection. We didn't actually die on Calvary with him in a literal sense, but spiritually, whatever he did, we did. Now, if one can grasp this, it's a foundational fact for holy living. You look at Christ, whatever you see of him, in this realm of salvation, you say of yourself. Now, this, had, this was an axiom in the early church. To us, it may seem like strange teaching. We know that because in this little paragraph, three times, the Apostle Paul says, we know. Twice he says it, once he apply, implies, we know this. Now, Paul had never seen the Roman Christians, never met them. He would, would someday, but he hadn't yet. And yet he said, we know, as if, why, if you're a Christian, of course you know that you are united to Christ and that whatever he did, you did. Why, that's common knowledge. But is it? I wonder if that isn't one of the reasons for the depression, despair, defeat, and ungodly conduct of many who name the name of Christ. 
that they haven't really seen who they are and where they are. Now, this was true of Timothy. Paul's young friend was given to melancholy. He would be easily discouraged and depressed. So Paul wrote to him and he said, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. If we died with him, we shall also reign with him. Paul didn't simply say, Timothy, cheer up. Things are going to be better. He gave him this way of looking at life as the remedy for Timothy's defeat and depression. And it's the same with us. This is the way to gain buoyancy, hope, and resiliency, holiness in Christian living. It's not so much here what we do, but it's what we realize has already been done. Now these four great pillars form the basis for the Christian's realization. Four pillars that I will mention briefly. They're all in this paragraph. What are these four foundational truths? The first is, in verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. Oh, I think that is one of the grandest sentences of all of the Word of God. Our old self was crucified with him. It doesn't say our old self died with him. It could have said that. That's true. But God in his grace reminds us of the shame and the anguish of the cross to show us at what cost it was that our old self was crucified with him. At the very cost of the blood and suffering, ignominy of our blessed Lord. What is this old self that died? This is not your, your fleshly instinct. This is not perverse nature as such. Your old self is your former self under Adam. You were born in Adam, and your old self means the man or woman I used to be before I met Christ. That person... That nature, that self that used to exist before Christ passed out of existence at the time of your justification and your regeneration upon believing. It passed out of existence, was crucified with Christ. To realize that is a giant step toward holiness. That means that you participated in Christ's death in such a way that the person you were, the former self, died with him. So picture Calvary and the three crosses there, the thieves and the Savior, and put yourself there on another cross or, or with Christ. The man I used to be, that man that walked up to the moment of decision, that man is gone, never again to return. Our old self was crucified with him. Sometimes we preachers have spoiled this great truth. We've said, now crucify your old self. That isn't what it says. 
It's not a command, it's a fact. You can't crucify your old self, even if you wanted to. God has crucified it already. You didn't have any part in it. God did it. He has passed out of existence. You cannot bring him back again. You realize that? Now, sometimes friends might be apt to quote to me Ephesians 4, verse 22. Put off the old man with his corruptions. Put off the old man. They say, you must still have him if you were to put him off. No. I think the reference is that we are those characteristics which surrounded the old life, those attributes, are not to creep back into the new life. They are not to have a hangover into the new life, but we are to make a break with them. Like you might say to a person, let's say to a grown man, it's possible sometimes that someone would have to say now, don't act like a child. He's not a child. He's left childhood behind. But at the moment, he's acting like a child. He's taking something inappropriate to what he is and actually using it there. And that's what it says. Put off the old man. Those characteristics of it, leave those behind. But here, the, the reality, the pillar, foundation on which we want to build and to grasp and make our own is that our old self, our former self, before we met Christ, has been crucified. It is dead and gone and cannot be revived. Now, the second pillar or foundational truth is in the same verse. So that the sinful body might be destroyed. might be destroyed. Now that's interesting, and we have to ask our question, what is this sinful body? The King James uses the word body of sin, which may be more descriptive, but at any rate, under this is the idea that the seat of sin in the human being is the body, doesn't mean the body is evil, it is good, it is created of God. But that what is meant here is that the physical body still has residing in its members sinful tendencies even after conversion. The body of sin is your body with sin residing in its parts in some degree. That is, if my former self died and is completely gone, that cannot also be said of sin in my body. Where sin did reign over my former self, it still has a function and an existence within my flesh. So Paul could say later in chapter 7, I sin, but it is not I who sins, but sin that remains in me, in my members. That's what's doing the sinning. Now it says here that that body of sin might be destroyed. And the word destroy here is an over-translation, I think, of the original, which ought to be more something like crippled or rendered impotent or weakened, subdued, rather than destroyed. Destroyed is misleading to us. What happens 
is that when Christ entered into our flesh and came close to the problem of human sin, when he broke its back by bearing its guilt and penalty, he also robbed it of its power in believers so that believers no longer have sin as an ascendancy over them. Rather, sin, while it still resides in their members, is subdued or crippled or rendered impotent under them. Now this is a great fact to realize, that while sin is in my members, it's not in me now, in my personality, because I'm a new man and the old man died. It's not in me essentially, but it is in my members. That means that there is now the possibility of beginning to move in the direction of holiness. Because it has been rendered weak within me. It is, it is impotent. Its ascendancy has been broken and there is now, therefore, within me the possibility to begin to live as Adam did before the fall. Not that I can be perfect. Sin will be in my members until I go to the grave. But there is now the possibility that one can go a long way in the mortifying of sin within his members. And this is the process of sanctification. Thus did the Apostle Paul say, I pummel my body, I subdue it, I keep it under, lest after having preached to others I should be disqualified. This is the struggle we have against sin, but the only way we can struggle against it is to know who we are and where we are. The body of sin, that is the sin which resides in my physical members, has been weakened drastically by Christ. It no longer has power over my spirit, and there is now opened for me in my new life the possibility of beginning to live in the direction in which Adam lived before he fell, of innocence, though we never reach perfection in this world. Now this may help us to understand a bit of this term backslider. What is a backslider? This is a Christian who, still having sin in his body, is allowing that sin to dominate him and to grow increasingly ascendant and ruling in his life. Some of you may be there. Your old self passed away when you met Christ. Sin lingered in your members, but you have fed that sin and nourished it and catered to it and coddled it, and it has grown and taken over your life, and you are miserable. This is the way you know if you're a backslidden Christian or if you're not a Christian at all. A backslidden Christian is in utter misery because he doesn't belong in sin. That's not his nature, and he's miserable. He continues, but he's miserable. An unsaved person gets a certain pleasure and satisfaction and is at home in his sin. And his misery is when he's away from his sin. But the misery of a backslidden Christian is when he's in his sin, because that's not where he belongs. If you're here today as a backslidden Christian 
who has allowed sin which lingers in the members to come up and have the supremacy over your soul. Go back and start all over again. Repent of your sin. Confess it to Christ. Ask Him to relieve you of it and all the misery attached to it and flee back to Christ, living again in the joy of the new life. So there's the second of the pillars of the Christian life. The first is the realization that the old self has been crucified, never to come back. The second is that the body of sin has been drastically weakened and opened the possibility for growth in holiness. And the third is glorious as well. That we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And the glorious fact that we see here is that the Christian now is dead to sin. Look what that means. If we had a corpse here, we could not charge that corpse with a crime, nor imprison it. The moment one dies, his obligations are released, the knots of human problems that have surrounded his life are cut through in an instant. And all the entanglements of his life are completely solved in a moment. He is free from those earthly things. That's what it's saying in verse 7. He who has died is freed from sin. So the Christian, in his personality now, is to stand back and look at his life. My old self died. The body of sin within me no longer reigns over me. It did. It had the ascendancy. But no longer Christ has robbed it of its supremacy, and I am free from its power. And so the Christian now is able to think of himself and know himself in this sense as being dead to sin. That is, his old self died, and his body even is passed out from the realm and reign of sin. And he no longer has to sin. The unbeliever must sin. He has no choice. He must sin. But the believer voluntarily sins when he does. He does not have to. And that's why it is even more grievous when a Christian sins because he was under no compulsion. He chose to sin. He doesn't so much break God's law as he wounds God's love and brings a shadow into the close fellowship between himself and the Holy Spirit. But the third great pillar is the realization that since I died with Christ, I am now free, in this sense, from the reign and realm of sin. I am free from the obligation, the requirement, the compulsion to go on sinning. What a glorious freedom that is. 
And look at the fourth of these tremendous pillars. Are you building on them? Do you know them? Paul assumed that all his friends knew these things. Do we know them? Christian knowledge is the great motive of Christian holiness. Holiness doesn't come so much from what you do, but from what you know to be your position in Christ. This then is the fourth of the pillars of Christian knowledge. That our break with sin has been decisive and permanent. Decisive and permanent. Now here's young Timothy, perhaps he gets lonely away off there in Asia Minor. His dear friend Paul is perhaps in prison and writing to him, and Paul's trying to encourage him. Timothy, we died with him. We shall also reign with him. Don't go back into the world. Don't be depressed because you have some, some temptations, because you failed here and there, because you've fallen into sin. Timothy, our break is decisive and permanent. If you have any question about what the nature of the Christian life is, simply look at Christ. What is true of him is true of you, Timothy. Look at Christ. See how decisive and permanent his break with sin is? Because Jesus came from glory where he had no connection with sin whatsoever. In heaven, was utterly separate from sin. But he entered this world and came into a connection with sin. Not that he became a sinner, no. But he came into a connection with sin, a relation with sin. That is, sin caused him to weep. Sin caused him to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Sin tempted him. Sin confronted him. Sin challenged him. He was in face-to-face -face combat with human sin. He was in relation to it. And that's the glory of our gospel. That our God did not remain aloof from our human predicament and anguish as we wrestled against defeat and iniquity, but he came and actually engaged sin in combat, struggling with it, wrestling with it. Christ came and endured the contradiction of sinners. If you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, I ask you to respect what he did in regard to your sin. He actually came and, and met it, felt its sting, and knew its power and grappled with it in his own body. That's our gospel. But he didn't stay there. The death he died, he died to sin. That should read unto sin. He died unto sin. Not that he died to sin as if sin somehow had entered his life, but he died unto it. That is, he died to his connection with it in the world. When he died, that relation to sin into which he had entered was forever broken. And he left it to return to glory. No more connection with sin. He died unto sin 
once and forever. And it's interesting that in the Bible, it always emphasizes how conclusive, how very permanent, how decisive was Christ's break with it. He died to it once and for all. The very thought of Christ returning to suffer again on the cross or of us somehow repeating his sacrifice is, is inconceivable with the Christian doctrine that his suffering for sin was once and forever and his break was permanent. He died to sin once for all. Now remember what he did, you did. If you're in Christ, that same decisive, permanent break with sin is yours. So that there is an implacable hostility now between you and sin. There is a loathing in your heart for sin. Oh, you may toy with it. You may be allured to it in some ways. You may fall to it. But in your heart, basically because of your union with Christ, you hate it. Now, dear friends, if Christ's break with human sin was permanent, as it was, never to enter again to relation to human sin, so is yours. You will sin in this life, but that does not affect your standing in Jesus Christ. That's an important point. Some of my friends are tormented by the idea that falling into sin causes them to lose their standing in Jesus. That is not so. I hope you won't fall into sin. I urge you not to do so. But when you stumble and fall, know where you fell. You didn't fall at the base of the mountain. You fell somewhere near the top. You don't have to start all over again. You simply get up where you are and confessing the misery of your sin, you go on with Christ. Your break with sin is permanent. You cannot go back to it. Your old man is dead. You can't put him on again. You're in Christ and that lasts forever and ever. Now, what we're called to do here, friends, is to reckon or consider these four great pillars to be under us and regard ourselves as standing on them in our Christian walk. That's what it means in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Now, how you interpret verse 11 is crucial for your Christian life. There are some who say, well, this means now I must, uh, by suggestion, simply keep repeating, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin, and therefore, maybe gradually I'll begin to believe it. That's not the point here at all. Others say you must uh, crucify sin within your body by self-denial in such a way that gradually you do become dead or numb to the allurement of sin. That isn't what this means either. To consider or to reckon means 
to infer from facts and to rest in those facts. The facts are that the old self has been crucified with Christ, that the body of sin has been crippled, that you've been freed from the realm of sin in a decisive and permanent way. Those are the facts. Now what God is asking you to do is to rest in those facts. Believe them because he says so. Believe them. In the same way that you believe you were in Adam, you can never feel what it's like to be in Adam. That's not a feeling matter. And you can never feel union with Christ. You feel fellowship with him. You may know his warm, gentle assurances of love. But you can't feel union with Christ. You can't feel what it's like to have your old self crucified or the body of sin crippled. This is not a matter of your experience, but of your faith. And the reason you believe it is because God says it. Isn't that, after all, what a Christian is? Someone who takes what God says by faith and rests on it and builds his life on it. So this is not so much a call to do something as it is to believe something. If you rest your life on these pillars by faith, yes, this is what God says my standing is. This is where I am by the word of God. And I trust that word. You have come light years toward the beginning of a holy walk with Christ. But it starts not with human effort, but with human faith. Do you have that faith? Timothy did. Remember, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, if we died with him, we shall reign with him. And Timothy took heart, and so can you. What if you are defeated once? What if sometimes temptation does overcome you? What if Satan sometimes has laughed at you? What if you have known depression and defeat? Remember Jesus Christ, who he is, and who you are in him. That's your standing. That's your glory. That's the beginning of your holiness and your victory and your success in life, which is God's will for you. His purpose is your holiness. And his plan to get you there is in union with Christ. But this was all negative. Next time we look at Romans... We take the last half of verse 11. Consider yourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. That must wait. Meanwhile, reckon yourselves dead to sin in Christ. Let us pray. Our faith, O Lord, is as small as a grain of mustard seed, and it has been weak, weakened by the atrophy of un, unuse and misuse.
strengthen our faith, O Lord. Help us to rest upon the plain statements of your word, to know who we are in Christ, and to find great joy in our union with him and holiness in our whole new relation to sin, fundamentally changed because we are in Christ. So receive glory and satisfaction in your heart as you behold us in your Son, fulfilling your purpose, 